folks. Welcome, welcome back uh, to the Folkcraft Revival Podcast. Talking traditional skills again this week. Uh, this time we're talking flint napping with Mike Cook from rwishi.com. This is a fun episode. I, I really enjoyed it. Uh, if you're interested in some of the, the older skills, I think you will as well. Yeah, flint napping, knowing how to make your own blades is, is like one of those base base knowledge, base skills that humanity was built upon uh that really one of some of our earliest tool making so uh this was a fun episode um this this is kind of a overview episode we don't really dive deep into how to make your own points or the the how-to side of flint napping we kind of touch on it as like an overview uh principles and uh some of mike's experiences using his own tips and blades and yeah it's it's more just like an overview. So at some point, we're going to probably have to revisit flint napping and go more into a, an in-depth type uh, how-to. Yeah, that, that one may be a little difficult to do just with audio, but I think it'd be a fun one. So may have to revisit flint napping. In fact, I know I will. There's a lot to cover in regards to things like this. So um, anyways, fun episode. I think you'll enjoy it. And Mike was a, a phenomenal... Uh, guest, a lot of fun to chat with, uh, involved in a number of other traditional skills and crafts, it sounds like, which isn't surprising. I think a lot of us who are interested in these older things, uh, we may focus on one, but we tend to delve into a few others. So anyways, we had a lot of fun chatting. Uh, Hope you enjoy the conversation. While you're at it, go check out Mike's website, though, um, artavishi.com. He's got some gorgeous work that he puts out he's a he's a professional flint napper has been doing this full-time for uh, i think he said 11 years is when he went full-time into his business so uh a lot of experience and he he goes down to the tucson rock and gem show every year and buys some just gorgeous rock i mean some of the points he's he's making some of the blades knife blades he's making they're just incredibly pretty i mean yeah, starting out with a material like that is makes for some very, very pretty pieces. Let's just put it that way. So yeah, check out his website or his Instagram, something like that. Go check out his work. And uh, yeah, it's super pretty. I think you'll, you'll enjoy seeing it and you'll get some inspiration from it. I think he's the only person I've ever seen uh, napping opal. Not many people willing to spend the time working on a on a semi-pressure gemstone like that that's a expensive mistake if you start screwing it up but um i guess once you once you get the the skill level up it's not as intimidating i know at my skill level that would not be something that i would attempt um anyways apparently opal naps well it's just comes in small pieces so i mike makes little jewelry items and whatnot out of it and it's it's super pretty stuff so i think you should go take a look at it um we started running a little long on this episode, so I didn't quite get to cover all the things I had. I still had a list of questions that I wanted to chat about, but we never got around to them. So bummer, but a uh, fun conversation still for you. And at some point we'll have to revisit things, I think. As usual, all the, the links to any resources mentioned it, during the episode are going to be found over at folkcraftrevival.com forward slash 23. Yeah, it's my website. That's where the page for this episode will live. And that's where the... Uh, the links and the resources mentioned we found. So you don't have to pause it and try and write everything down. If you don't want, you can just head over there and, and click through to the links. Um, 
pretty excited this morning. Uh, it was down in the 30s this morning when I got up to go on my run. So autumn is on its way, and, and I'm kind of excited for some cooler weather and, and to get, getting back into fall again. Um, I enjoy summer, but it always seems a little slow sluggish feeling maybe with the heat so i'm excited for some cooler weather again yeah felt great this morning yeah i don't really have anything else for me so let's go ahead and jump to the episode uh, i started off by asking mike about the first point that he ever napped okay yeah well the first point i made uh, i still remember it i had been just trial and error struggling trying to figure out flint napping how to do it and I, I made one out of a piece of glass. And I remember when I got it done, I was, I was like, wow, I made my first arrowhead and couldn't wait to show it to some friends. So, uh, you know, I had it in my pocket and uh, a couple of friends, I says, hey, I got to show you something here. And I pulled it out of my pocket. I says, check this out. And they looked and they're like, uh, what is it? <laughs> and, and I, uh, at first I thought they were pulling my leg and it was like, well, uh, no, they weren't. I said, well, that's an arrowhead. Oh yeah. Oh yeah. 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 So my first, my first attempt was, um, uh, it was, it was rather modest. Let's put it that way. Uh, and that's typical for anybody who starts flint napping. Um, it's a, it's a progression. You start out just struggling with the fundamentals and then you start picking things up and gradually you see, you see improvement and that, you know, that, uh, that curve, uh, varies with every person, uh, depends on how much natural God-given aptitude you have for foot mapping. Uh, and like anything, some people have more than others. But that was that was my beginning, and for some reason, I never got discouraged enough to quit. I just uh, just had this desire to learn it uh, from the time I was a little kid. How um, old were you when you made this this point? I was probably about twenty two, twenty three years old, um, and what really uh, uh, what really prompted me was. Uh, you know, from the time I was a kid, uh, my dad had a little collection of arrowheads he had found, and he'd get them out once in a while and, and show them to me and my brothers and sisters, and, and it just fascinated me how these these Indians, these prehistoric people, could make tools and arrowheads out of rock. And I just, I never lost that fascination. And uh, I was out one day... Um, walking down a, the edge of a freshly worked field. And I remember looking down and seeing this almost perfect arrowhead laying in the dirt. And I picked it up and I was just, I was blown away. It was the first arrowhead I ever found. And it just, um, it, it just relit that fire. And I, I right then I was like, I got to know how they did this. I got to figure out how they did this. Yeah. And so I, I attempted uh, researching it at the local library, and that was uh, a somewhat futile attempt because, you know, we're talking, this was back in you know, the early 80s. 
Um, there wasn't a lot written on the subject of flint mapping. And of course, being prior to the internet, uh, there wasn't a lot of informational resources. And the only thing I found in the library was, uh, well, it was not accurate uh, at all. I yeah. still, and this, and this is, uh, this is something that a lot of flint mappers, uh, uh, we joke about it. Uh, for a long time, there was, there was stuff in, uh, books, uh, written about flint mapping. And, uh, it said that prehistoric people, uh, made these stone arrowheads and tools by heating the rock up and then dripping water on it. Mm, and that yes, made that it one. fractured. And, you know, modern flint mappers, just, you know, uh, <laughs> laugh about that because, no, that's not at all the way they did it. And if you try doing that, which I did, uh, it ends up making a lot of steam and it also can make the rock explode, uh, just start violently fracturing. So uh, I learned the hard way. No, I don't think this is how they did it. <laughs> but... Uh, yeah, many many flint knappers have gone down that road. Well, what what got you started on the right path? Well, I uh, it was actually uh, an accident. I was uh, I came across a reference uh, in a book that uh, prehistoric Indians used antler deer antlers to make arrowheads. And when I read it, I thought, oh, yeah, this has got to be another wife's tale. That's not going to work. But I thought, well, I'll give it a try. So I found an old set of antlers that my dad had, a deer that he'd gotten years before. And I had gotten a small amount of flint. So I took these antlers, and I was trying to make something happen, you know, make make, uh, that flint fracture somehow and I was just getting frustrated so when the frustration built to a certain point I just took the one antler and I just I just hit that piece of flint with it and you know what a piece flew off from it and I thought whoa wait a minute wait a minute there might be something to this so I uh, I started pulling around with it and I kind of stumbled into how to actually make it fracture. And then the challenge was, how do I control it? Yeah. And I ran into probably a short time after that, I ran into a guy at an archery event who was flint napping. And I was just like, whoa, there's somebody that this guy's actually doing it. So you know, I scampered right over there, and there was a bunch of people watching him. And I stood there and watched him make a little notched arrowhead. And I still remember it was a piece of uh, what's called Coshocton flint from Ohio. And, of course, I'm shooting questions at him just as fast as I can. And he's just, oh, okay, well, just, just watch here, and I'll tell you. And, uh, so I watched the whole process. And I, I learned quite a bit just from that, uh, that one uh, demonstration that uh, his name was Norm. And um, he had been doing it for quite a few years. 
and I was just uh, enamored that somebody was actually doing this and was good at it. So I kept in contact with him, and I, again, I learned some fundamentals from him that got me going down the right path. Yeah. And then it was just, just a question of doing it, practicing, practicing, practicing. And I actually got to a point where I would take my arrowheads and show them to my buddies, and they'd say, wow, those are pretty nice arrowheads. <laughs> they, 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 I, mean, I mean, people were recognizing my arrowheads for what they were, so I, I knew I was making some progress at that point. Steps in the right direction. Yep. Yeah, yeah, but that's been uh, that's been well over forty years ago, and I've it's just been a learning trajectory uh, since that time. And I mean, I you know I've been doing it for a living for the last uh, eleven years or so, but I'm still learning. And honestly, that's that's why I'm still doing it. There's there's still a fascination about it uh and and there's still a lot of things uh that remain to be figured out so as long as that's the case i'm i'm going to keep flinting happen as long as i can possibly do it is that what well i was gonna say is is that really what the fascination is because uh yeah why the fascination with rocks and making something that frankly is a it's a stone age tool it's kind of yeah. i don't want to say yeah. obsolete but it is kind of obsolete in today's world so why why the fascination with it is it simply because okay. there's always more to be learned that's that's part of it but uh, no it's a good question the other uh the other component of it for me anyway was uh i i was uh, from a young age i i had bows and arrows and I enjoyed going out and shooting my bows and arrows. Yeah. And my dad had taken me out, you know, hunt, hunting and taught me some hunting and fishing. And I wanted to bow hunt and I, I began bow hunting you know, talking back in the late sixties. And once I started flint mapping, you know, I always had this fascination with prehistoric people and technology and, uh, Plus, I always, as a kid, I, I loved going out and looking for pretty rocks. Yeah. So, um, I guess the, the, the natural, uh, thing for me was I kept wondering, well, I wonder what it would be like to actually take these arrowheads out and hunt with them. And of course I, I'd always ask myself the silly question, well, I wonder if they really work and and, and then it's like, well, they, they, they had to have because people used them for thousands of years. People are still around, so, and we wouldn't be if they didn't. <laughs> absolutely. Yeah, absolutely. So that became uh, kind of a quest. It's like, I have, to, I have to try this. I have to actually do this. So I, I got into making my own bows. Um, and my arrows, uh, and my goal was to go out and gather, harvest all the raw materials I needed, and then learn how to process everything and make my own, uh, so-called primitive archery equipment and then go out and hunt with it. Uh, so that's, 
that's what I did. And it was a, you know, it was a, a process. There was a lot of, um, other skills I had to learn yeah. along the way, uh, bow making and how to procure and process materials. Were you bow making before you started flint napping? No, I wasn't. Uh, however, my dad had made his own bows many years before. Before you could go to a store and buy them, he made his own bows. So I, I had kind of a natural primer there. Uh, so I thought, well, yeah, why not? Uh, so that's that's what I set about doing. Um, and, you know, making the bows, that was a whole learning process in itself. And while I was doing that, you know, I was out uh, um, getting experience bow hunting with, uh, you know, fiberglass, modern fiberglass bows. So it was a kind of a gradual working towards that goal. And, and, and during that process, I kept uh, wondering about, you know, the lethality of, of stone points because, you know, as a, as a hunter, uh, you know, as an ethical hunter, you always want to make very uh, clean, quick kills. You don't want the you know animals to suffer unnecessarily. And I was, you know, I was concerned with that. So I decided that I was going to conduct my own research on uh, stone projectile points and uh, how efficient they they were in terms of flight characteristics, penetration. So I did something that uh, oh, a lot of people would find uh, amusing. Some of some people <laughs> might find it morbid, but uh, I live in southern Michigan, so car deer accidents are not an uncommon thing. They're actually a very common thing. Yeah. So when I was you know driving about, going to work, coming back. If I happen to come across a fresh uh, deer kill, uh, you know, because a lot of people, they just leave them laying there in the ditch. I would load it up in my pickup truck and take it home. And I had arrows made up, ready to go. So I would take that deer carcass and I'd go back a, you know, a reasonable distance that, uh, for taking a, a shot and I would fire those arrows into the, into those deer carcasses and then recover them and see what they actually did. And I was quite surprised at some of the things I learned. Uh, number one, that, uh, stone projectile points when properly mounted, uh, have, excellent flight characteristics, just like any modern, uh, steel point. Yeah. The other thing was that they also have excellent penetration characteristics. And there's one thing about stone points that, uh, anybody who works with stone knows, and that is it doesn't have great tensile strength, like steel, uh, it's, it's brittle, so it can break snap. And I was very concerned with that. But what I found was uh, deer or bear-sized animals, a stone point will most often, if you hit a rib, an animal that size will just sever that rib and won't even damage the point. Uh, In some cases, it may. uh, 
but uh, well, if a stone point breaks upon uh, entry, what happens is the fracture causes typically another cutting edge. So, uh, well, without going on too long about that, I I was firmly convinced and confident that um, from my experimentation that stone points, properly made stone point, was going to be every bit as lethal as any steel point. How long was it from the time you started flint napping until you felt like you were making a, a well-made, a point that was well-made enough that you were confident taking in the field to start hunting with? Yeah, that's, that's a good question. Um, I would say, I would say it was probably a good seven or eight years okay. before I, before I reached that level of confidence. Um, because I wanted to be sure that, uh, I was going to be able to go out there and, you know, do the job. I didn't look and I didn't want to wound animals unnecessarily. Yeah. Uh, but, but, um, yeah, I did go out and I, I still remember the first deer I got with a stone point. And I, you know, I had harvested quite a few deer along the way with, uh, with my traditional modern bows. But, uh, the first deer I took with a stone point was, wow, it was like, uh, taking, taking a trip back in time. Uh, it was, it was a rather close shot, about 30 feet. And, uh, the deer went probably a hundred yards yeah. and folded up and it wasn't hard to track. And I just, I was, I was just amazed. I mean, I felt like, wow. Yeah. Yeah. It was like going back in time. And, and honestly, I've, over the years, uh, I, I took quite a number of deer and bear with stone points and it is a unique thrill, no matter how many game animals you take. There's a sense of satisfaction that comes just from making and using your own equipment in general. I mean, uh, steel or stone points aren't legal here where I live, but you know, mm. I hunt with my own flat bows and long bows that I made and my own yeah. arrows and I still make my own points. I'm just using steel for them. And, you know, I, I love the sense of satisfaction that you come from using and making your own, making and using your own equipment and, you know, actually being successful with it. But yeah, I would love at some point yeah. to have a chance to do that with a stone point because that's that's a whole different thing than making your own steel points. Yeah, but it's a good point, and, and it's very it's true. Uh, uh, the more of yourself you put in to your hunting, what you do, the more reward uh, you get back from it. Uh, yeah. yeah, when you make uh, any of your own equipment, uh, yeah, it really does add a lot of um, satisfaction in, in the whole experience when you're, well, whether you're successful or not, honestly, um, I, I can remember spending hours out in the woods, uh, in the fall of deer hunting and, you know, you're energy and you're blind and you're waiting for a deer. And, uh, I can remember many times just sitting there and I'm, geez, I'm looking at my bow and I'm looking at the arrows and, you know, which you spent uncounted hours uh, making. And, you know, there was satisfaction just sitting there being out in the woods with that equipment that you made with your own hands and just the experience of being out there hunting with it. 
Yeah. Uh, there, there's satis- satisfaction in that. And if you get, you know, if you get something, yeah, that's, that's a great bonus. Uh, but, uh, there's a great deal of enjoyment and satisfaction, just, uh, creating, uh, anything that you take out in the woods with you, uh, and hunt. And, and honestly, I think there's a resurgence of that. Uh, you know, we, we live in this high tech world and we're used to everything being kind of instant, you know, you just have everything now. You want something, you go to store, buy it, or, or you go on Amazon and, you know, it's door to your door. But, uh, in the world of bow hunting, uh, this is kind of, uh, it's kind of counterintuitive, but I make, uh, you know, hunting points for, uh, bow hunters, who, yeah. who want to experience that, but don't have the time to learn flint mapping, but they do want to go out and try to take, uh, an animal with uh, a stone point. And I sell hunting points to guys who use high tech compounds, uh, just because they, it's the same thing. They, they want to want to experience that. It's like, wow, go out and hunt with a stone point, just like our ancestors did for uncounted thousands of years. Yeah. Uh, it, it's, it's a unique thrill and it really does make you appreciate the, the technology that we're privileged to have, uh, when you go out and, uh, and hunt with something that's been around for and used by people for thousands of years and you just think to yourself, wow, that must have been quite an existence. If you've ever gone out in the woods and just spent uh, a couple, three days, um, just, uh, well, a lot, of, a lot of people do that now. They go out and do little survival exercises for the fun of it. Yeah. And if you've ever done that, oh man, uh, you realize really quick, uh, just how challenging it would be to just live off from the natural world and survive. Uh, that takes, uh, takes a lot of skill. It takes a lot of, uh, intelligence and I'm glad, honestly, I'm glad I don't have to do it. <laughs> you know, it's, it's fun to fantasize about, but well, you go out there and you try it and it's like, boy, this this is tough. This is really tough. I'm one of those people. Yeah, I'm, I like to fantasize about it. And I think there's a fair number of people that will be listening to this that are kind of the same ways. They like to dream about a lifestyle like that. But at the same time, a lot of us don't necessarily want to be have to live that way. You know, it, it's fun for a weekend or for a week or something yeah. like that. But if we come down and are honest with ourselves, you don't really want to go back to living like that, per se. No, no. I, uh, well... For example, here we, we've uh, we've been having kind of a heat wave here in Michigan this summer. Uh, a lot of days in the 90s with high humidity. Yeah. And you know what? Every night I am so thankful I have air conditioning. <laughs> <laughs> so yeah, it's uh, uh, there's advantages and disadvantages to. Uh, living in the modern high-tech world, but, um, yeah, I, I kind of like technology. It's, it's a good thing. 
So, but you know, primitive technology, it just has a, it has a, um, just that element of mystery. Uh, and it's, it's, uh, it's just, uh, I'm trying to think of the right word. Um, it, it just kind of, uh, it, it beckons people like me to, I guess you could call it, go back in time, try to try to rediscover what that life was about what it what it a little bit just get a taste of what it might have been like yeah and it it is kind of a um i guess you could call it a uh a backwards type of discovery and in most flint nappers that i know uh they kind of share that that uh, fascination that passion about rediscovering uh things from the past that have been essentially lost i think there is generally a yeah kind of a a return to some of that um i don't know if that's simply because yeah the people i talk to the people i uh enjoy spending time with they're also like-minded people who have an interest in things from the past and learning to make and do things with their hands but i definitely see a resurgence in that type of thing uh most of it just as you know a hobby something to do on the weekends or whatever but um, mm-hmm. still a resurgence in interest and that's, that's a good thing. Um, can we go ahead and dive into, uh, like the general principles and fundamentals of flint napping now? Sure. Uh, I don't want to get too far afield or people might start, uh, dozing off. Uh, but <laughs> yeah, flint, flint napping is on one hand, it's a, you know, a primitive skill, but on the other hand, uh, it involves some very complex physics called fracture mechanics. And the uh, the basic principle involved in flint napping uh, is called conchoidal fracture. And it's, it's just, um, it's the way, okay, a material that is capable of conchoidal fracture, uh, the best example of it is glass. Uh, whether it's natural glass, obsidian from a volcano, or whether it's man-made glass, glass has perfect conchoidal fracture, and what that means is it conducts energy in a very uh, consistent, predictable way. Yeah. And the key is just figuring out those fracture mechanic principles, fundamentals, and once you get practiced, accomplished at the fundamentals, then you start building on those fundamentals and learning the more subtle aspects of, of fracture mechanics. It's, it's, in one sense, it's simple, but in another sense, it is extremely complex. And, uh, and, and that, that's, uh, I don't know, there's just, there's something very uh, fascinating, captivating about it. And, all you got to do is go to a nap-in sometime. Uh, nap-ins are kind of become very uh, regular uh, events around the country. And uh, essentially, it's just uh, a bunch of people who love uh, breaking rocks, getting together, and sharing uh, materials, information, uh, and just hanging out with uh, you know, people with that common interest. 
Yeah. And they, they've, they've become, uh, like I say, coast to coast. Uh, they become very regular events that um, people travel considerable distances to, to attend. And uh, I've been to many of them over the years, and they're, they're uh, I guess you'd ca- you could call them uh, like primitive trade shows. Uh, just like-minded people who love the same thing, getting together and sharing information and materials. And, uh, uh, yeah, it's, it's become a, a kind of a phenomena that keeps growing, um, where it's going to max out. I don't know. I hope it continues to grow. I've never actually been to a nap in, um, I think that'd be a ton of fun. Do you have any uh, like couple favorite ones that you've been to that you you really enjoy that you would recommend people check out? Yeah, um, my favorite is the Flint Ridge nap. And Flint Ridge is uh, there's a park in uh, oh it's kind of central Ohio, and it's actually the site of a um, where prehistoric people went to quarry. Uh, material for many thousands of years. It's called Flint Ridge Flint. Mm-hmm. Um, it it occurs there, and there's a park that um, every Labor Day weekend uh, there's a big nap in. Unfortunately, this year it had to be canceled because of the COVID stuff, uh, which you know a lot of event, events, including Flint napping, have been canceled. Yeah, but uh, hopefully. Um, you know, that's going to pass fairly soon. Uh, but there's uh, really in any part of the country, you're probably within a couple-hour drive of, of an app or two. Sometimes there are more local events sponsored by, you know, just some, some uh, a group of local Flint nappers. And sometimes there are larger events like the Flint Ridge nap-in. Um, there are some sizable ones that go on in Texas, uh, Florida, uh, Missouri. Uh, they, they really uh, are around the country. If you go online and uh, you just Google it, uh, you'll come up with uh, many references to uh, Flint nap, uh, napkins. And they're, you know, like I say, some are local, more local events and some attract people from, well, around the world. I may have to get on and see if I can find like a directory of nappins or something like that and put it in the show notes so folks that are interested can find one that's near them. Yeah, yeah, that'd be a great idea. Yeah, there's uh, there's postings all the time on the internet for upcoming nappins, uh, and hopefully, well, we'll see in the next few months where the uh, COVID stuff kind of uh, wanes. Uh, you know, people can start gathering and numbers again Uh, i'm sure the the napkins will start and there's going to be a lot of enthusiasm for going to them just because uh you know they have been canceled for the last few months and people you know in any trade or interest uh people love to get together with other folks that that are interested and do the same thing and it's it's like I, I kind of have a joke about going to napkins. Uh, the reason, I think the main reason that flint nappers like to get together uh, for a few days at a, at a napkin is because 
when a bunch of flintknappers get together and hang out and bust rocks all weekend and just look at arrowheads and stuff, well, it gives us an opportunity to all feel somewhat normal. <laughs> you know, we, uh, individually we sit around in our in our garages and 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 uh, workshops or out on the patio and we flint nap. And our neighbors, yeah, you know, some of them just shake their heads. It's like, oh yeah, yeah, he's out there breaking rocks again. But yeah, he seems to be harmless. <laughs> so. <laughs> Everybody has their own unique uh, reasons that they flint nap. Uh, and I, I find it interesting when I meet people who uh, do flint nap or are starting it. Uh, I enjoy talking to them and learning uh, what attracted them to yeah. flint napping. And, and it's, very, it's very much an individual thing. Uh, some, some people, uh, I know quite a few people there. Uh, their dad or a relative collected arrowheads and kind of got them interested in it. And in a few cases actually took them out artifact hunting and that kind of uh, sparked a fascination with it. And then they, they, uh, they, they just, they want to learn more about it. And there's nothing, there's no better teacher than doing something uh, and, that, and that's really what flint mapping is. It's, um, it's like, a, like a lot of skills. Uh, there's only one way to uh, learn it, become accomplished at it, and that is to just do it. And unfortunately, it's one of those things that you can't learn it from just watching a video. Uh, but don't get me wrong, there's, there's, uh, there's plenty of uh, flint mapping resources on youtube for example great videos that are, are quite helpful so you can learn some great tips techniques principles things like that but yeah uh the whole experience uh thing uh, that's that's the key to just about all of these older skills is yeah you can see how it's done or read about how it's done but actually doing it is an entirely different animal most of the time yeah yeah although i will say if there was youtube Around 40 years ago, it would have saved me a lot of uh, headaches initially. <laughs> it, it would have at least got me steered in the right direction. Yeah, like we said, those tips and techniques and just seeing someone else doing it. I mean, you, you were talking to how it was a, a major leap forward for you when you uh, came across the guy at that archery event who was demonstrating flint napping and you got to sit and watch and ask him yeah. questions and whatnot for a while. I mean, it's, yeah. it's similar to like to that. You have less of an opportunity to ask questions when you're watching a YouTube video, but you still get to kind of see what they're doing. And, uh, you may not understand all of it, but at least you'll be able to pick up on general motions and, and technique and things like that and try and apply it to your own. But, um, when it comes to, uh, kind of circling back to, uh, the principles we were talking, uh, you needed rocks that, uh, will give you a conchoidal fracture. Um, can you kind of describe what a conchoidal fracture is for people? So they, so they know what they're looking for in a rock. Yeah. Uh, I guess the best way to describe a conchoidal fracture is, uh, I had a BB gun when I was a kid and I learned something about a BB gun that if you either intentionally or accidentally hit a window with a BB gun, it definitely makes accidentally. Very, 
Uh, I think it was. Yeah. <laughs> my memory serves. Uh, uh, well, I mean, I'm, I'm. Uh, this, this is like, yeah, this is an experience of a friend that I, I just happened to be there. That's, that's, yeah, that's what it was. That's what it was. But uh, uh, when, when a BB, when a BB hits a window, this little cone-shaped piece of glass pops out the other side, a perfect round cone uh, with about oh, roughly 100 degree angles on it. It's called a Hertzian cone. That's the essence of uh, conchoidal fracture. It's very predictable angles. The force of the angles causes fractures in a very predictable way. So flint napping boils down to first having a basic understanding of what that Hertzian cone is and it leaves a, well, for example, if you pick up a piece of glass and you take a, well, a stone and you hit the edge of that glass, it's going to cause a fracture that will cause kind of a rippled scallop shaped flake to come out. Yes. It, and the, those little waves are actually, um, signatures of the shock wave that you introduced into that glass. And a material that doesn't have conchoidal fracture simply won't do that. It won't fracture in that predictable way. So, you know, glass, um, flint, uh, or materials like flint, jaspers, agates, uh, they all have conchoidal fracture. And they come in different qualities. Uh, some are really good, and some have impurities and are mm, kind of so-so. And another interesting thing is that many natural materials that have good conchoidal fracture can be significantly enhanced by heat treating. Okay. Uh, it actually changes the crystalline structure of the stone and changes the texture of it and, and quite often changes the color in some materials. So it, it was a, uh, it was something that, that prehistoric people had figured out and modern flint nappers do the same thing when they find local material that has good conchoidal fracture, but can be kind of tough. They learn how to heat treat it requires finding the right temperature range and it has to be uh, heated up and cooled off very slowly uh, or it'll just fracture. It'll, well, in some cases, literally just explode if it's heated or cooled too fast. But when it's properly done, uh, it can bring about amazing change in the material and make it much more uh, workable. So I've... uh when I flint napped, um, I've never actually used flint. Uh, I've only used obsidian or I started like you did with glass. Um, mm -hmm. And the obsidian I used wasn't a very good grade of obsidian either. It was uh, just what we had available where we lived up in Eastern Oregon. But you were talking about toughness right there. Uh, and that would be, is that is that the primary reason that you would want to heat treat? Is because the rock is too tough, or what? What are the characteristics of the rock that you would then decide to heat treat? I mean, why would you? 
Okay. Yeah, that's a good question. Uh, when you, well, there's, there's, uh, several, uh, basic, uh, methods used for flint mapping. The one is called percussion, uh, where you're actually striking the material with another harder stone or, uh, an antler, uh, something that's softer. Now there's, that sounds kind of contradictory, but I don't, I don't want to go too much into the, the uh, physics of it here, but percussion is directly striking the material, uh, at a, at a precise angle. And then there's what's called pressure where you apply, say, a, a tip of an antler tine to the edge and you push, you build up compression and then create the fracture. And then there's indirect percussion, which uses, in most cases, a piece of antler. You place it on the edge of the stone and then you strike it with a wood or antler or stone billet. Uh, and the advantage of that is it gives you a little more precision and yeah. your your tool placement but it's uh it's it's actually when you say you pick up a piece of rock and you test it with a hammer stone you hit it and it, it you can tell when you hit it um it's kind of tough and maybe a little bit grainy so it's going to require a lot more energy a lot more strength to get that material to work uh, to flake, to fracture the way you want it to. And what heat treating does is, one, it makes it more brittle, uh, but it also changes the crystalline structure. Uh, and there's some debate about what actually happens on that level, but it definitely uh, can change the stone uh, dramatically. For example, agate is a very hard material. It has conchoidal fracture, but it's, it's, uh, it's much harder than glass. Yeah. But if you properly heat treat it, the texture will become very glass like, and it will nap almost as easy as glass. So it, and now it, it will become more fragile. And in terms of, uh, just going back to hunting, you can, there's one advantage of a little tougher material. The, your points will be more resilient to breakage, Yeah, but it's going to be harder to make, you know, well-controlled, well-made points with really tough material. Whereas with the heat treated, you, you can make a better point quite often just because of the workability of it. And, you know, I've hunted with obsidian, which is comparatively, uh, brittle, if you compare it to a, a natural raw flint, yeah. But I have taken game with obsidian points, and uh, obsidian is the sharpest substance known to science because it shears on the molecular level. Most, you know, flint, agates, jaspers, uh, they shear. They have a very fine crystalline structure. And they shear on that level, and, and they do come to a very sharp edge. But obsidian, which is just natural volcanic glass, it's, well, it's called an amorphous material, which just means it doesn't have a crystalline structure. So it literally shears on the molecular level. So hmm. it can be just scary sharp. 
but it is correspondingly fragile at the same time. So, you know, it's, it's a, it, it, there's kind of a trade-off or a balance there. Yeah. So it sounds like then uh, mainly the reasons why you decide to heat treat is when you pick one up and you first start trying to knock a, a blade or something off your core and you realize how tough it is. And if you get too much of a grainy texture at that point, then you would decide to heat treat? Yeah. Yep. That's, that's pretty typical. You test the material and any type of material, say, for example, Flint Ridge Flint, uh, it varies quite a bit. Some of it will nap quite nicely raw, and some is rather tough, and uh, you definitely want to heat treat it. Yeah. And uh, there's, there's uh, some nappers prefer napping tougher material because it's more forgiving in some ways, too, of mistakes. In other words, you know, you can spend a half hour, 45 minutes making a point or a blade and you're getting right down where, okay, I'm closing in. I'm going to have this done in, in a little bit. And with, with uh, heat-treated material, it's not going to forgive mistakes as easily without breaking or yeah. you don't want it to break. Uh, whereas tougher material is a little more forgiving. Uh, so it, it's a, you know, it's a balance. There's a trade-off there. And now I've found that this is not a, I don't, I don't think this is a, a hard, fast rule, but I've observed that uh, nappers who prefer material a little on a tougher side are usually younger nappers. And us older nappers, we, <laughs> we, we get to where, to where we kind of favor more user-friendly materials because uh, it's uh, flint napping. Uh, it, it is uh, it, it is hard on your joints if you do a lot of it. Yeah. Uh, so there there are some. Uh, and another thing I do want to mention uh, is there there are health risks involved in flint napping if you don't take precautions. Um, when you're flint napping, you're, you're generating a very fine dust. Every time you create a fracture, it's, it's silica dust and these little silica particles, whether it's glass, flint, uh, agate doesn't matter. Um, these little silica particles are extremely sharp. And if you breathe that dust in, it makes little cuts or incisions in your lung tissue and it'll heal up and you won't feel any, any effect, but over time, if you continue to flint nap and you don't take precautions against breathing the dust, your lungs will eventually become a mass of scar tissue and they cease to function. And it's, it's a, it's a disease called silicosis. So that's something that anybody who's interested in flint napping uh, I just want them to be aware of that. And, and there's, there's many things you can do to guard against that. And, uh, what do you, what do you do as a, I mean, you're a, uh, professional Flint napper. It's what you do for a living now. I mean, most of us listening mm-hmm. to this or that attempt it, it's going to be a hobby thing that we do sure, you know, every now and sure. then on the weekend. It's not as big of a concern, but you f- nap a lot more than most of us are going to. So what are, what are the precautions that you take? 
I have a, a vacuum system in my workshop uh, where I sit and do most of my napping. I have a four inch hose right there that all I got to do is flip the blower on and it sucks okay. the, the dust away. Kind of like a dust now, collector gonna be napping, system. Yeah. Yeah. And if you're napping outside, um, that's better. That's better than napping inside, but you're still going to ingest some of that dust. So if there's a nice breeze blowing, uh, yeah, it'll blow the dust away. But another thing that works, uh, if you're outside, say you're, you're in your garage, a lot of guys nap in their garage. And well, I shouldn't say guys, um, because there's actually a lot of ladies that went nap now too. Yeah. Who really in, enjoy the, 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 uh, the skill and the artistry involved. But if, if many nappers will just go sit in their garage and nap. And if it's, you know, if the weather's nice, it's still, you want to open up the garage door and have a fan behind you. So it'll blow the dust away. Um, you can do that in an indoor environment, but it's, it's not the best because if the room you're in is closed, that fan is essentially just going to be blowing that dust around and around and around, and you're still going to breathe it in. Yeah. So it's just a, a, uh, it's just a good practice to get into. If you, even as a hobbyist to take every precaution you can to avoid, uh, ingesting that dust that in, in most cases, you're not even going to see it. Uh, it's so fine, but breathing it is, um, yeah, it's not good. And I think every flint napper who's been doing it as long as I have has probably, well, I guess there's no probably about it. Uh, there, there's been some damage done because you can't, you can't absolutely guard a hundred percent against uh, breathing in some of that dust, but you can minimize it to the point where again, a hobbyist napper, it's, it's not going to be, a problem. Yeah. Um, on the safety note as well, uh, you know, I've driven a number of, uh, pieces of rock into my fingertips and whatnot while doing this. What are your general recommendations and guidelines and whatnot for avoiding damage to your digits? Well, I don't know. I've never cut myself. What are you doing wrong? Ken? <laughs> <laughs> Uh, no, that's, that's, uh, I'm glad you asked the question because, uh, yes, if, if you want to be, uh, learn how to flint nap, uh, you will, you will get cut. That's just part of it because you're dealing with, uh, when, whether it's glass or flint, um, the flakes come off, they are quite sharp and you will accidentally get cut and, uh, some nappers will wear gloves and that, that's a good, uh, good precaution, but many nappers don't like to wear gloves because they want to feel the stone in their hand. Uh, and then there's something to that. Uh, I generally don't nap with gloves because I want to feel the, the stone. It has to do, some of it has to do with proper support when you're napping to avoid accidental breakage. But uh, gloves are one way. Um, the other is just just being conscious of the fact that you are, you're creating very sharp uh, flakes and fragments of stone. And sometimes you can cut yourself just reaching for a tool 
uh, if you're not paying attention and drag your hand across the flake and zip, yeah. all of a sudden you're, you're bleeding. Although a lot of times you don't, uh, you don't feel it. And next thing you know, you, you look down and it's like, oh my gosh, my rock is bleeding somewhere. And, and that's, that's particularly true of obsidian because it's so sharp. Uh, if you talk to any flint napper who's napped obsidian, they'll tell you that uh, it's pretty common to cut yourself and not know it until you see the blood. Yeah. And the, and the slivers or the flakes that you flake off or whatever, I've noticed on the ones that I was doing with obsidian too is some of them are so thin, they're basically translucent. And so you stick a bit in your finger and you don't notice right away. And then you look down and you're dripping blood and you're trying to find this thing in your finger and it's see-through. So it's hard to find it yes. and pull it back out. Oh, yeah. Yeah. Not only that, but uh, another, another precaution is uh, if you're napping in, in a, uh, a warm climate or uh, conditions, it's probably best to not nap in shorts because uh, things happen. And uh, I learned that the hard way at a nap in once. It was rather warm. So I changed into my shorts and I was doing some percussion napping. And when you're, you know, when you're striking uh, that edge, that platform, the flakes come off with considerable velocity and even little tiny flakes will come off and hit you in the leg. And again, sometimes all you feel is just a little tick on your leg. You don't think anything of it. Yeah. And then you glance, glance down and you got this rivulet of blood running down your calf and you're like, Oh my gosh, what, what did I do? <laughs> so, uh, yeah, it's best to wear, uh, to wear pants and and if they got cuffs on them that that will hang over your shoes that's good too because i can't tell you how many times i've <clears throat> done a napping session and i get up and start walking away and all of a sudden ow Oof. i Oof. pull my shoe off and yeah you get flakes will just kind of sneak into your shoe and you start walking away and one will uh poke you right in the bottom of the foot but most of the time injuries are you know, they're, they're minor. You know, having a good supply of band-aids is always a, a good thing when you're, when you're flint napping and at nap-ins, uh, there's always first aid kits just in case somebody, you know, sustains a more serious injury yeah. and it does, it does happen. Uh, but it, it's, it's like anything. If you adopt uh, basic safety practices where they've just become habitual, then injuries are far, far less. But other than that, yeah, you're going to, you're going to bleed a little bit when you, when you uh, learn Flint nap and even, Hey, I've been doing it for over 40 years and uh, yeah, I still, I still get cut. It's just part of, uh, part of the fun, I guess. And folks, uh, you know, don't get scared off. It's, it's, not that dangerous of an activity. It's still a fun hobby. It's still worth pursuing. Yeah. Oh, absolutely. There's, yeah. Can, can we circle back around and kind of lean in a little bit to, I mean, we, we mentioned briefly percussion pressure and indirect percussion flaking. Can you kind of describe um, the technique you use on those three methods and how they're done? Yeah, I'll try to, 
I'll try to put it in terms that are understandable without getting too in depth, uh, because it's hard to visualize things sometimes from a, uh, you know, from a verbal description, but yeah. the first basic step in flint mapping is procuring your material. And fortunately these days you can go online and there's a lot of online nappers, vendors who sell raw materials. But if you want to go out and procure your own, uh, first thing you have to realize is uh, nappable materials don't occur everywhere. Uh, the geology has to be right. There are some areas that are quite rich in, in uh, nappable materials. Uh, Texas, for example. Uh, there's lots of good flint in Texas. Um, in Michigan, where I live, not so much. There are indigenous sources that uh, prehistoric people used, but it's, uh, depending on where you live in the country, you may have to drive a couple hours or more to find material. But the first thing you do is you find the raw material. It can occur in what are called nodules, a round or kind of an ovate shaped stone that often occurs in limestone beds. And you have to pop that open with another stone. And then you begin a reduction process where you, you look for the proper angles to hit the stone to drive off a large flake, which is commonly referred to, uh, referred to as a spall. And then you take that spall or flake. Uh, what, what sort of angle were you talking about when you say that proper angle there? What sort of angle are you, are you talking well, okay, you're talking, um, let, let's say the, a piece of stone, you, you break a piece off this, this spall, this piece of uh, rough raw material. Yeah. What you, what you want to do is look for, uh, say, a facet on that stone that's, say, between, uh, well, 70 and 80 degrees. And then you want to strike down on that, I'll call it slope, and you hit, okay, at the bottom of that, that slope, that angle, near the bottom of the stone, you want to hit somewhat above the edge, and the distance above the edge is going to largely determine the thickness of the spall that shears off. Yeah. Um, that's basic percussion, and when you're doing that, when you're procuring your material, you are hitting, you're not hitting on the edge of the stone. You're hitting above the edge of it. Once you get a piece of material that you then want to start to thin and shape, then it changes and you strike the stone on the edge. But first you have to prepare that edge. And I won't go into a lot of technical stuff here because this is something no, no, you an, want to an see. An overview is, yeah. is just fine. Yeah. Yeah. You prepare the edge so that you can strike it without crushing it, where uh, in a nanosecond of time when you strike it, compression builds up into the stone to a point where then it literally shears off on this predictable line, which is an, one side of what I referred to before called the Herpsian cone. And once you do that, okay, you've knocked the flake off, you've thinned it, and it's just a process of setting up and selecting your platforms 
preparing them properly. You abrade them so that they don't crush, so they withstand the, uh, so they absorb, well, for lack of a better way, so they absorb the energy and transmit it in the form of a fracture. And it's just preparing and creating those controlled fractures. Uh, that's the process of thinning it, of shaping it into what you want it to be. Uh, and there's, you know, there's a lot of different, variations and nuances involved uh once you get it percussion down to where you want it to be then typically you transition to pressure flaking which is a handheld as a uh, as a note before we move into pressure flaking uh you said you start hitting the edge when you start thinning the the blank that you want when you start shaping it more um right can you describe, I mean, because yeah. you're not holding it like edge up and just smacking down on it. Can you kind of describe to folks where you want to hit that? Yeah, that's, that's an excellent question. There's two, two primary ways that modern nappers do that, and probably prehistoric nappers do it much the same way. If you've got a large piece, many nappers like to lay it on their thigh or on their knee to support it. You prepare the edge. You hold it snugly against your your thigh, uh, and you strike the edge in a you know in a more or less downward vertical motion to catch the edge, and that creates that fracture. So you're holding the you're holding the piece horizontal and striking down vertically on the edge. More or less. More yeah. or less. Yeah. yeah, more or less. And the other uh, way of doing it is holding it, if you're right-handed, holding it, cradling it in your left hand, and then striking it. And you're, you're, uh, you're supporting it in your hand. And the thinner that piece becomes, the more critical the support comes to avoid snapping it. Yeah. Which is, which is one thing beginning nappers uh, have, a, have a, you know, a hard time overcoming, but eventually you, you figure out the subtleties involved. So those are the two primary ways you, you go about, uh, percussion napping, but there are other, uh, offshoots of that that individual nappers come up with some, I know nappers who have only been napping a few years and I'm amazed at their progression. Yeah. Uh, and you can, you can tell that, Oh, wow, they have a, they have an exceptional degree of God-given talent. And then, of course, you got to have the fire in your belly to want to learn it. And it's, it's uh, you know, I've done enough teaching to know that uh, it's really rewarding to watch a young napper who has a considerable amount of aptitude. And then they have the fascination with it to boot. Uh, that's really fun to watch uh, somebody sink their teeth into it and just take off. Watch the uh, progression. I, yeah. 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 I, I get a, I just get a kick out of that because, um, everybody, like I say, every, every individual has their own, they develop their own style. I, I know many, many modern nappers around the country, around the world. And you get where you can recognize some nappers work in a, in a display case, uh, say, you know, people collect different nappers work and you can walk by somebody's, uh, collection and you can pick out 
points uh, or blades, and you you, rec- you know who the napper was because you recognize their individual style. Yeah. And people people tell me the same thing. You know, it's like, oh, I know your points. I I can tell as soon as I see them. I know I know they're yours. <laughs> I'm like, well, okay. Uh, uh, but it's it's true. You know, everybody who flint naps, we're all dealing with the same uh, fracture mechanics principles. But every person has that own their own unique individual application and style, and it. It always shows in the in the finished work. It's not too surprising, though. I mean, if you really consider it's, I mean, it's just to an untrained eye, they're going to look similar. But uh, I mean, if yeah. you, if you look at something like a uh, painting or something like that, I mean, no one's going to say Da Vinci's work looks the same as Picasso's because they're both using paint. Uh, well, when you start yeah. paying attention to the medium and you you get some skill and you start paying attention to the nuance, I'm sure you start picking up on a lot of things that the majority of us normal people don't really uh, notice when we're just looking at a point. Oh, that's a, that's a great, uh, a great point. No pun intended. Uh, and I think that's <laughs> true in every realm. Uh, I have friends who are musicians, uh, mostly guitarists. And of course that's what they're into. And they can, they can see a guitar. You know, of course they're into that. You know, there's, they know all the custom guitar makers and, stuff and they can look at a guitar and tell you, oh i know who made that and they'll tell you who made it yeah and i look at a guitar and i'm like well it's a guitar yep. uh they got they got this 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 neck thing and the strings and it's a guitar <laughs> <laughs> so uh i i'm probably as undiscriminating when it comes to guitars as some people are when it comes to arrowheads and things like that but uh yeah it's largely the same in any uh in any skill field. Or yeah. art form, yeah, yeah, agree. and that's that's the that's that's the beauty of it. Uh, everybody has their own unique way of expressing what they do with those with those skills. You start with the same principles and fundamentals, and then what you do with it after that is entirely up to you. It is. It is. Yeah. So, so that was percussion flaking. Is is generally yeah, you're either supporting it in your hand. And then striking down on a on a roughly horizontal edge, or you're doing the same on your leg. How about um, pressure flaking? Okay, pressure flaking is it's a little different. Uh, again, you have to prepare the edge, the angle, and you abrade it, and then you apply the pressure flaker, whether it's a piece of antler or most modern nappers use copper because it. Uh, it doesn't require as much retooling. Uh, antler seems to wear quite a bit faster than the copper. Yeah. And of course the whole principle is that the antler and the copper is softer than the stone. So when you engage it, whether it's instantaneous as in percussion or whether it's gradual as in pressure, you are building up force on that edge. And as you do that, the softer material antler or copper engages that hard stone and the more you build up the pressure or compression uh, eventually something has to give and because of the brittle nature of the stone that fracture uh, occurs and with pressure you are building up the compression pretty much 
straight in to the plane of the stone or the preform. And then when you feel you've built up enough compression, then you exert a little bit of outward, or if you want to look at it again, the, the preform is horizontal. You, you push the, you build up the compression in the same line of the plane. And then when it's built up, you feel, yeah, I think I got enough. Then you give a kind of a downward push that causes the flake to detach and shear off. Okay. And it's, it's, it's kind of a, you, you have to develop, develop kind of a fluid motion. Uh, it's, it's like many things, uh, many skills. There's a lot of muscle memory that comes into play. Uh, once you do something, uh, over and over and over again, you cease to have to consciously analyze or think about what you're doing. Uh, it's more muscle memory that's taking over to get the desired effect. Yeah. yeah. Uh, and so it's, it's, uh, yeah, again, it's, it's, uh, it's, uh, amazingly simple, uh, craft or skill yet at the same time, deeply complex in many, in many facets of it. I think that's, uh, pretty similar with a lot of a lot of these older crafts is from the outset they really are fairly simple looking uh but when you dive into it and you really start learning there's a lot there to learn oh yeah i i know people that do well any number of things while making uh making birch bark containers i know folks that do that yeah and you know once i start if i watch them or start talking to them asking them questions only then do I realize, wow, there's a lot more to this than I thought. It's, it's <laughs> way more than finding a piece of bark and then just uh, putting together this basket or container. Uh, there's a lot of stuff that's from from harvesting the material, knowing where to go, what is going to be the best material, uh, then processing it and going through the actual uh, creation process of whatever whatever it is you're making. Uh, it's there, there's always a lot more to it than there first appears. Yeah. Yeah. And I guess, I guess that's why, um, people in any craft or skill like that, uh, they do it for years and years and years and they just keep doing it because I, I think you just never really learn it all or you never get to the the, the, the plateau of skill where you want to be, you're always like, oh, I got to do a little better. I got just a little better, a little better. And that's, I guess what keeps you, keeps you going, keeps you going, keeps, on you, keeps, you, keeps you hungry. Yeah. yeah. In other words, if it get if it get, if anything gets boring, well, <laughs> what do you do when you're bored? You walk away from it. And I think, I, I think that's true with a lot of things. If, if you get to the point where, you're not learning, uh, or it just doesn't fascinate you anymore. Well, you're going to go fishing or find something else to do. Yeah. To touching back on, on pressure flaking again, essentially then just to wrap it up, I, I just want to make sure we, we get the basics. There is you're using your antler or your copper and you're pressing kind of into your edge. And then mm-hmm. when you build up the pressure, you push down 
and it flakes it off the bottom side of your your blank that you're yes. you're doing at the moment. Right, right. Okay. And again, there's there's variations. Some mappers have some unorthodox applications of that. Yeah. Uh, but that's the I guess you'd say the more traditional way. And if, uh, yeah, anybody who wants to get started, um, definitely uh, go online, see if there's uh, napkins that go on somewhere in your area. And by all means, go on YouTube and check out the abundance of flint napping videos on all different levels and facets of flint napping. Are, are there any specific resources that you like when it comes to covering uh, the basics and the principles and, and teaching. Uh, come, I mean, you just mentioned YouTube. Do you know of any specific uh, flint nappers on YouTube that do a really good job or any books that you'd highly recommend or anything like that uh, for people getting started? Uh, yeah, there is a book that I would recommend. It's been around for a long time. It's been edited and, and updated. It's called The Art of Flint Napping by D.C. Waldorf. Oh, excellent. It's actually the one I own. I'm sure. Okay, yeah. <laughs> you, can, you can go online. You can still get it. Uh, yeah, D.C. Waldorf. Uh, oh, yeah, he started napping. Oh, it's, it's many decades ago. And he was one of the first who really uh, delved into um, trying to teach, and that, which is why he, you know, wrote the book. Yeah, and it is a very uh, it's a very good book. It's got excellent illustrations, and I think he does a good job of explaining the fundamentals. Yeah. He goes into a little more advanced stuff as well in the uh, revised version, but I think that book, if you're going to get a book, uh, I would recommend that one. I, I think it's very helpful for most beginners. And YouTube, uh, boy, there's there's so many. Um, I mean, if you go on there, you can surf around, uh, anything from basics to advanced stuff. Uh, I got a few videos, but, uh, the main one on flint napping I, I did is on notching. Um, many flint nappers struggle with notching, you know, putting those notches in, it. uh, many point types were notched. And there's a, uh, definite, uh, there's definite fundamentals involved in that that are kind of refined. So uh, a few years back, I did a YouTube video on notching and it's, uh, it seems to have been helpful to a lot of people. So I actually watched that one. I really liked that one. And that's something that, um, you know, I've struggled with and I, I like how in your, your video, you show points that you did from a few years before that were kind of familiar looking to me and then points that you were doing, uh, now, or I guess currently at that time when you made the video. Um, and yeah, you had a, a serious progression in the quality of your, your notching that you were doing. It took me years to finally figure out what was, what my problem was. And so I did the notching video because I, it, it is difficult to just explain it. Uh, so in the video, you know, I try to use visual aids and, and it, it seems to have helped a lot of people. So, uh, yeah, I encourage folks just to go on my YouTube channel and, and check that out. And the first time you watch it, it's probably not going to make total sense. But if you revisit it, things will start to fall in place. And I, I think it, it, it would really help folks. 
And, and, but again, go on YouTube, surf around. There are just, oh, there's so, so many foot napping videos. Uh, there's, there's one, uh, I think he's still, I think he still has his videos up. His handle on YouTube is paleo man, Jim. Okay. Paleo man, Jim, uh, Jim Wynn is his name. Very accomplished napper. Uh, I don't know if Jim is still napping or not. Uh, and I haven't been on YouTube to check if his videos are still up, but I'm thinking they probably are. He has, a Oh, a bunch of videos. Very well done. Uh, he explains them very well. Uh, so that's that's one guy I would recommend checking out. Perfect. I'll uh, I'll uh, make sure I link his channel up as well as yours uh, at the show notes on on my website um, when I put this one together. That way, folks can just easily click through to both your website, and I'll, I'll make sure I'll put a link specifically to your notching video as well, so people can look at that one because I found it very helpful. Okay. Yeah. And I'm sure I missed some things coming out of it because I haven't really done any flint napping in a while, but. Uh, just, just watching it, I definitely got some good tips out of it. So, um, I'll put a link up to both, uh, your channel, that video and, uh, Paleo Jim's channel as well. It sounds like you'd be a good one for folks. Yeah, there's, there's, yeah, great resources on YouTube and, and it will help folks. It'll, it'll help them, uh, shorten the learning curve, uh, especially in the beginning stages. Uh, again, you know, you got to do more than watch the videos. You have to actually start applying it, but, uh, yeah. Oh, if there would have been YouTube videos available 40 years ago, oh man, I could have just, I, I could have avoided wasting so much rock. <laughs> but, uh, Alas, yeah, there wasn't. It's, it's a, yeah. On the YouTube note, I noticed that you did a, a shaving demonstration with your rocks too, and that one seems to have gotten a lot of views. That seems to have been a popular video. What, what prompted doing that video? Okay, now which one was that? We, when you uh, did a shaving demonstration, you shaved with a piece oh, of rock. Oh, yeah. Yeah, actually, I've got a couple of shaving videos. I guess it was uh, just to make uh, the public aware of just how sharp and efficient stone tools can be. Yeah. Uh, so I did the shaving video to for two reasons, to demonstrate to people that, yeah, this so-called uh, primitive technology in many ways is pretty sophisticated. And the other reason was to make folks aware that you do need to be careful with this stuff because it's potentially dangerous. So you can, you can seriously injure yourself. Uh, and I, and I, like on my YouTube videos, the shaving videos, I, I, uh, you know, I, I advise folks don't, you know, don't try this yourself because it's, uh, it is potentially dangerous and, you know, I've been doing it for a while. So I, I, uh, uh, but let's put it this way. I don't shave with obsidian every day. Uh, <laughs> it's, it's, it's much easier taking uh, my five blade ship razor. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> much, much, much less chance of accidental, uh, things happening. Uh, I was just kind of curious what prompted that one. Cause that was, one that I have not seen before, uh, someone doing, and it seems to have been very well received. That one got quite a few views. It looked like so. Yes, I've I've had requests for uh, making uh, obsidian razors, uh, but I I kind of decline on that. I just 
you know, there's some liability stuff there, so I don't really. Yeah, probably better. Uh, yeah, I don't. I choose not to sell Obsidian razors. Yeah. But uh, no, it it is uh, scary sharp stuff. Uh, it's um, and it can be used uh, as a as a cutting tool very very efficiently. Are there any any like considerations or advice you'd have for using stone blades or stone tips? Yes. Uh, number one, as I said before, stone uh, is capable of an extremely sharp edge. You know, obsidian, flint, uh, anything with with good conchoidal fracture. However, it does not have extremely high tensile strength, and that translates into if you drop a stone blade on a hard surface, uh, it can break. Uh, or if you say you make a stone knife and you want to go out and field dress a deer or something, you know, I've done it countless times. Uh, they're quite efficient, but you want to avoid any lateral torquing of the blade Yeah. because it can and will break if you stress it in that way. But if you use it as a cutting tool is intended, a stone tool is remarkably efficient. Uh, and, and, you know, again, for thousands of years, that's all over the world. And, and that's a, uh, a common denominator, too, for people. Uh, no matter what your uh, heritage is, at some point, your ancestors were flint nappers. Yeah. Uh, everywhere in the world, the, the Stone Age prevailed at one time, and that's, that's what folks used. So we got it in our genetics, in a manner of speaking. It's still there somewhere. You just got to unearth it. Yep, yep. I feel like I've, I've probably kept you long enough, so we should probably wrap this up, even though I still have quite a few questions which I could touch on. But uh, I, was, I, I just want to finish up with, with a couple things. Um, first off, can you tell people about the, the flint napping you do these days and uh, your website where they can buy your pieces and... Also, uh, you've mentioned your workshops a couple of times. How often do you still do those? And you tell, tell people a little about where they can find your workshops and, and what sort of stuff you do. Okay. Uh, lately, I haven't been doing many just because of my, uh, my time constraints. Uh, you know, I do this for a living, so it's, uh, it's definitely a full-time job. But if I have an upcoming workshop, I will post it on my website, and that is artofishi.com. That's spelled I-S-H-I. And there's, I also have a gallery on a website called flintnappers.com. Okay. I think folks would enjoy that. There's many flint napping artists who have galleries on flintnappers.com. Uh, it would give, give them a good overview of the variety of things that flint nappers do. I think folks would enjoy just going on there and browsing. And, and if they got any interest in flint napping at all, I think just seeing what other folks are doing, modern nappers, would be uh, encouraging and inspiring. Oh, because very. there's, yeah, like I say, there's no qualifications you've got to have. You, you know, whether man or woman, uh, a lot of kids, oh, there's lots of kids have, uh, you know, taken up flint napping. And they just, some of them just really take off on it, just love it. Yeah, and it's it's a good it's a good thing for kids to do. It's kind of a, I think it's a good thing that stimulates kids' imaginations, and it's um, good good hand to eye coordination training, and it just 
yeah, it's a good creative uh, hobby for anyone to, uh, to get into. So I would encourage folks, unless you, um, you know, if you're on medications, blood thinners or something like that, then, you know, it's probably something you want to think twice about. But uh, other, other than that, it's a, it's a great hobby. And if you finally go off uh, over the edge, as we say, um, I wouldn't advise people to pursue it as a profession, but uh, that's what I do. I, I still enjoy it. It's still challenging. I love what I do. And, but whatever level you uh, decide to pursue it on, I would tell folks, just give it a try. And uh, you'll you'll figure out soon enough if uh, if that's something that's in your in your blood, and I I hope more people do because it's a it's a great great hobby. And honestly, uh, I don't work on Sundays. I take Sundays off, but sometimes I sneak down to my workshop and I'll just nap for fun. As <laughs> so, crazy as that sounds. Uh, you know, you do it for a living, but if uh, you love what you do, it's still it's still enjoyable. That's part of what I want to encourage people to do too. You were talking about how how great this is as a hobby and and you know working with your hands and whatever. Uh, that's kind of the part of the the drive behind wanting to do this podcast is introduce people to a lot of these different things and give people even if they may not uh, start it right away, at least give them a little bit of background information and a little bit of an overview so they have somewhere somewhere to start with mentally when they when they consider taking up some in the future so yeah and if they have any interest in in well for example i know many archaeologists who are are flint mappers yeah uh, if, if somebody has an interest in archaeology definitely flint mapping would be a natural thing to uh delve into yeah so or or if you're just a, a rock enthusiast uh it, it's let's just put it this way. It's an excuse to play with rocks. You can be a big kid. If you're not a kid, you can be a big kid and just sit around and play with your rocks and flint nap. And that's, that's okay. Thanks for, thanks for uh, coming on, Mike. I, I really appreciate you taking the time to chat. This was fun. I enjoyed it. And I, I think I've learned some things that I'm going to have to go out and try and find myself a source of rock now to start breaking stuff. Well, let me know. I'll, I'll, uh, I'll see if I can help you out. And uh, yeah, I appreciate you taking the time and, uh, you know, putting flint mapping out there for more folks. I, yeah, I love it when I see people get enthused about it and get interested in it. Uh, again, it probably just makes me feel normal, but <laughs> that's, 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 so it's okay. Playing with, playing with rocks is, uh, it's a legitimate hobby pastime. And, uh, I, I do, and I do love seeing more people get interested in it. So if I can be of help, uh, you give me a call. And uh, if I can be of help to other folks, they can uh, email me. Just go on my website, my email address. And uh, if I can help you, I'll do my best. Thanks for listening to this episode of the Folkcraft Revival Podcast. As always, the show notes and links from this episode can be found over at folkcraftrevival.com forward slash whatever the episode number is. Uh, I should tell you right now in your, your podcast player what episode this is. I appreciate you tuning in. If you have any guest or topic suggestions, or any other feedback for that matter, I'd love to hear from you. Shoot me an email over at daniel at folkcraftrevival.com. If you want to help the podcast grow, the best way to do that is recommend and share it with others that have like interests. 
Second best, go give me a rating and review over on the Apple Podcast slash iTunes platform. Um, that's the biggest podcast platform, and doing it over there will really help me rise in the, the search rankings and show up to a few more people when they're looking for stuff. So, uh, In fact, while you're at it, just mash the subscribe button while you're there. Hope you enjoyed the episode. Now let's uh, get out there and make something.